Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Relationship Renovation Podcast. I'm Tara Kerwin. And my name is EJ Kerwin. And just thank you for being here, for showing up, for listening. And again, our intentions behind this podcast is to help people understand what makes healthy relationships work, what makes us healthy individuals. We try to provide guest speakers, which we have today, to share their experience, their expertise in a wide range of topics. So thank you for being here. And it's always helpful for us if you'd like and review a Relationship Renovation Podcast. Definitely helps us sort of get our our message out more and more. Also, if you just know other people in relationship or just, you know, that would be interested in, in learning about all the stuff that we bring on. We bring in a lot of guests uh, who give insight into just mental health and wellness and how to be better individuals so we can have better relationships. So please, you know, tell people about our podcast. All right. So enough about us. Let's introduce our guest speaker. Yeah. So we have, uh, you know, we're lucky enough to have a, a staff of very talented, very smart individuals who offer therapy here at our center and also pop in and out of our podcast and and share their insights and help us have really just interesting conversations. And today we have uh, we have another member of our staff who's been on once before. Uh, his name is Gabe Lobato, and he is a therapist here. He's a business owner. He is a husband. He is a father. A father. He is a lot of things. Welcome, Gabe. Welcome, Gabe. Thank you, guys. I, I appreciate just even uh, entrusting me to be here with you guys to talk about something that's so uh, near and dear to my heart of uh, this area of my life that I've struggled with and have recently come to figure out how to get some control or manage it better. Yeah. The one thing I'm so grateful for is we all get vulnerable on here and and really we all become therapists for a reason because we like to share our stories and tell our stories and like what works for us. And I think that just makes us so much more hearable because... We all go through it. We all suffer, you know, and we are kind of compelled because of our profession to really find ways to reduce and navigate that suffering. So I'm just always grateful to have our clinicians on here who share their personal stories and who get vulnerable. So again, thank you, Gabe. I mean, one of the one of the gifts of being a therapist, I think, is that we learn so much about the human psyche, and then we have the opportunity to apply it to our own lives. And I know also you know, one of the gifts in therapy, but also here in this podcast is that people love when therapists open up a bit about themselves and they don't just feel like that we're like these scientists who are just sort of tinkering with them, but that we understand some of what it is that they're struggling with. And it's not just sort of our book smarts or our research, but it's also our personal experiences that help them. And so today we're going to talk about anxiety, which is huge. I mean, the, the percentages are like ridiculous, something like 60% of individuals report, One out of three. you know, struggling with with some level of anxiety. And Gabe, you're going to start sort of on the personal side, right? You're going to let, let us know a little bit about your relationship with anxiety. Yeah, you know, with with anxiety, I guess I want to start out with just what it looks like, what it can feel like. And um, for me, I've had, you know, variations from in session, I can look like the most relaxed individual. 
And I noticed that I would be like this tension between my fingertips. Hmm. And I started realizing that that's why I would have like this torn skin on the side of my thumbnails. And even just with like clenched grip on the steering wheel while I would be driving. And so in this realm, these are some of the things that I started realizing, man, I, I need to get some improvement in this area. Yeah. How long, one, do you think you've struggled with anxiety, but also when did you first identify it and know like, hey, this is anxiety? You know, going through my program of study to become a therapist, I really had to start becoming more self-aware, doing some self-assessment, even looking into a genogram, which is like a, a family tree on steroids, uh, understanding mm -hmm. your background and where you came from and your home life experiences that contribute to your present day struggles. And gaining an understanding in that room really helped me start to realize, wow, this is unhealthy. And I feel abnormal mm -hmm. compared to my spouse. And my spouse is like way more even keel. And just feeling like, like, what's wrong with me There's sometimes? What's wrong with me? Yeah. When do you think like, hey, this is about when it sort of began? Yeah. So I think, you know, looking back, I, I've had to reflect at different points in my the timeline growing up. And I remember this very specific season of my life. I was in fifth grade and I was in this classroom environment that the teacher really lacked control of the environment of, of the kids. And during this school year, early in the beginning of the school year, I started having just stomach cramps, hmm. totally unexplainable. One night we went to the emergency room. They were almost going to do uh, an, an appendix removal. And then I was fine after I like woke up from a nap and not in the waiting room. And then from there, I was in and out of the hospital for days and weeks on end over about a four or five month time period. There was nothing, tests, exams, doctors could mm. not figure out anything. And when I think about this time frame, I think it makes me think about my dad. And when I started investigating his background, my dad, I believe he could have, should have been diagnosed probably with general anxiety disorder. And he was severely suffered with just mood instability from a negative perspective. He was mm. always flipping out. It was very unpredictable. It was just nerve wracking to know when he was going to explode physically, verbally at home. And as a result, my oldest brother, who received kind of a, a brunt of this like severe instability, got into his teen years and started creating a little bit more instability in the household. Mm. So on top of my dad, who was unstable, my oldest brother becoming unstable, that dynamic between my older brother and my dad becoming unstable, my household felt very unstable and out of control. And what's interesting is I remember in my bedroom that like my coping mechanism was I became OCD with how my room was organized. Mm -hmm. if, if someone moved a model car on my shelf an inch, it was like I had to put it back. If someone control. sat on my blanket. It was what you could control. Exactly. Yeah. It was what I could control. Yeah. Like the one area of the house that you had some agency. Mm-hmm. And an interesting piece too is because I've been working with you for a while now and I can just feel your sensitivity and and kids are born with like different types of temperaments. And if we are more sensitive, a more sensitive temperament, we just suck all of that 
chaos in. And again, for little kids, it doesn't show up like in adult anxiety, right? It shows up in more physical somatic complaints, headaches, stomach aches, you know? And so a lot of people like don't even attune, like this must be anxiety, right? They think it really is like a medical issue. And so that's just important to really clarify that in kids, anxiety looks very different than how it shows up in adults, but good for you for being able to identify. So that environment in my fifth grade classroom, I felt like it was like that straw that broke the camel's back. Hmm. And it was just like, that was it. I couldn't take it anymore. And what was interesting was that as soon as they figured out that the classroom environment wasn't compatible for me, they switched me to a different classroom, way more to control, way more peaceful. And it was like, I was good at that point. Because at least you then have half of your day in a controlled, structured environment, and then you can go home and handle the chaos versus being in chaos 24-7. That's just like way too much for anybody's nervous system. So I'm glad they were able to like adjust. And the one thing I want to bring out just about the program that we do here is the importance of a genogram and a timeline, which I feel like it really gives you the opportunity where when I talk to clients, I don't know much about them. And they know they're experts over their lives, but some of those puzzle pieces, they Mm -hmm. don't see how those puzzle pieces connect. And so as a clinician, it gives you the opportunity to connect some of these puzzle pieces for them and then to increase self-compassion for themselves and from their spouse. Yeah. I mean, because they come in to couples counseling because there's a problem in their relationship. And so they assume like, well, here, we're just tinkering with the relationship. And then you lead them through this process where they see all these building blocks that contribute to these problems and give them some like understanding. And then it also like Mm -hmm. disentangles them from like, oh, we're just broke. You know, I mean, so, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this before we began, but that established anxiety as a child that Mm -hmm. probably wasn't really helped much. And probably you just sort of dealt with it and found ways to cope and succeed despite it. Mm -hmm. Then it starts to appear in your relationship. And you got married young too, right? Like how old were you when you got married? I like to say a month before I turned 21. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because because I, I was 20, but I was, I was close almost to 21. Yeah. And so it, it's interesting because it, we've talked about a podcast with uh, regarding doing a podcast about expectations. And as I was even right. thinking about this this morning, I was thinking about the fact that the way I coped with having to be in control of my space at home, that when I got married, there were these expectations that when my wife didn't meet my expectations of what I thought a controlled household should look like, neat, orderliness, like to a level of perfection, it disrupted our relationship. So in the early beginning, if the house wasn't perfectly clean and in order, I was upset. It had oh. me stirred up and riled up. Wow. Because your room expand your your room exactly. as a kid, it expanded outside <laughs> of the room and it became like whole the house whole thing. house needs to be in order in order for me to feel safe and in order for me to feel good. That word is so important because I think, especially if when we're we're in an intimate relationship, the partner might judge you as like being like really OCD or too picky or such a perfectionist. And what it really is under all of that is this feeling of safety. Because I know, and EJ and I can relate, you know, I come from a trauma background and very chaotic family. Like 
when there's something out of order, I literally feel like something bad's going to happen. Something bad is happening. And I know intellectually like, oh, that's not true. But that's how my nervous system was built up because if it was messy when we were younger, bad things would happen. And so really helping um, yourself understand, but your partner, like it's a feeling of safety, right? And that and that you don't want to have to rely on that external control. But right now, especially when you're 20, one month before 21, we don't know that. We're just think this is like me and this is how people should be, like an orderly house. So you, you and your wife, you get married, you're like 20, 21 years old. I assume you guys have never lived together. Suddenly you're living together like what started to appear in your relationship as a result of just that commingling? Uh, you know, there had been so many instances where my wife needed me to do something to pitch in, to help even put together a simple meal. And I remember like multiple times just like rejecting, no, I can't do this. Um, if she needed me to go pick up a fast food order, like the particular request between her and my girls that they would have were like so specific. It was so overwhelming for me. And I would just like, I would always mess it up, always mess it up. And and to the point where like, no, I can't do this. And just not being able to do certain things. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this morning, it's funny because my wife put in an order at Sam's Club for pickup, but we also needed to go in to pick up a couple of items. She asked me on my way home from this podcast, can you can you stop by and take care of that? And I'm like, no, like I, I, I don't want to have to go do the pickup order where they bring it out to you in the chaotic parking lot, then have to go shift my car to another spot to get out, to go in and get a couple of items. And then five, 10 minutes later, I'm thinking, wait, anxiety, I'm coming to do a podcast about anxiety. That's an anxiety reaction. So then I was like, honey, you're right. I'm sorry. I will save you a trip and I will go do this for you. I can do this for you. What does it feel like inside your body when you get that one thing that's just you weren't planning on it's a little bit different you know what happens to you it feels like this nervous pent-up energy like I, I feel it in my chest it's like either a tingling or like a pressure in my chest um in my mind it feels like i don't know if you could imagine a jumping castle with 20 30 kids bouncing around on a jumping castle in my mind like i could just feel this chaos in my head and it just it just feels out of control. And so when I think back, even this morning, just reflecting on this, it's that coping mechanism, like something feels like I can't control. Okay, so before we get, I know one of the things you really want to offer our listeners is is sort of like how you've learned to handle this, how you've coped in healthy ways. But before that, let's like wrap it back to relationship, right? And so this was something that was happening internally for you and it disrupted your relationship, right? What happened? Like what was the result? Yeah, what happened in your relationship? Yeah, so so in my relationship, what, what I realized, even just in the past year or two, just realizing that I wasn't able to be there for my wife. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to to do my part to the helping partner, even relationship like with in-laws. You know, I, I remember when she would tell me, you know, we're having a get together with her family. And if she told me a couple of days prior, I would be like, wait, no, like I didn't get enough heads up to like mentally prepare for it for this weekend if it was like two or three days away. So then it would disrupt 
that expectation of what a healthy, loving, supporting spouse should be like. Was she frustrated? Oh, totally. She was absolutely, yeah. I mean, there are times it just, but she would shut down. She So she would withdraw. it would build up. She would withdraw. What would happen for you when she would withdraw? It's funny because thinking about this needing to take control, I would become that anxious person and I would need to solve it immediately with her. And I would pound it. Pursue, yeah. I would pursue it until she's shutting down. But then I would pursue it literally until I saw her like break down emotionally. And if I could at least get that, well, then at at least I was able to do something. And And it feels so decrepit and just so evil when you... But it was soothing in that moment because you didn't realize you had this anxious, preoccupied attachment. And Mm -hmm. by kind of like knowing that she's actually going to be here and and that she's not leaving soothed you, right, from that insecure part of you. Yeah. Hmm. And would you struggle with, because you're having an internal experience based upon things changing and things feeling out of control, but... Oftentimes, she was sort of delivering the stimulus that created that experience, right? Did you struggle with, you know, like, hey, if you just stop doing this, then I'd be okay? Like, how did you, you know, did you recognize like, hey, no, this is my stuff? Like, what was your internal, you know? um, Dialogue? Yeah. I'm sure that there were times that there were things that I, I definitely looked at her as the problem or the cause of these triggers. And it was her unrealistic demand or unrealistic expectation that just like felt inappropriate. And when I would have the anxious trigger, I would be like, because this feels out of control, no, like draw my hard line, I can't do this. Yeah, just lay down that wall. Even though you were probably already anxious, there was probably no way to actually put everybody back in the jumping castle, right? You know? (laughs) All right, so, I mean, you began to realize what was happening. What was the first, like, realization, like, aha moment for you around understanding it? So as a business owner, I've, I've owned a business for 17 years. And as I've transitioned into this field, because I, I feel like my passion is to work in this field. And as a business owner over the last two or three years, I've had to transition the business model to be able to function with me on a very, very, very small scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, trying to finish school, trying to do internship hours and all of this. And as I got it to that stage, I would still have calls when they would be opening up the office. I would have a call for one of my managers and it would be some sort of, in my mind, I'm thinking, what the heck? Why are you calling me? You're in charge. You should be able to handle this. And it would trigger in my mind that thing that I can't control. And it would stress the crud out of me. And I would have this mental thing going on in my head you're incompetent. I'd feel this emotion inside that was related to being out of control. I would put my happy tone on with saying, oh, hey, how's it going? I would hang up and then I would reiterate this negative tone or replay this negative sensation inside of my mind. And I realized like, I can't keep doing this. This is so unhealthy. And and even my wife, I would trigger my wife in these moments. Is that hard? Oh yeah, it was it, it was hard, but it took it took some time. It, it it took some time to realize how unhealthy this was and just how ridiculous 
this was and, and that I don't need to be operating in this manner because there are times that I came to realize, man, like if I could just flip a switch and not be like this, because I look at my wife and I think, man, it looks so like she represents freedom, like just huh. this freedom from not being under this, like mm-hmm. uh, this weight of yeah. reacting and operating like this. It's interesting. You sort of reached a point, it seems, where like for a while you could handle like sort of the disruptions within the family. Then you managed to cope with the business. Then you added becoming a therapist. It was just a little much. Like it got to the point where your system was like, okay, this old operating system is no longer working. I got to change it. And and here's the other thing. As a business owner, we went through a growth period where finally, like in the last five to seven years, like it has become very successful. But every year there would be minimum 30, 50 times a year I wanted to throw in the towel because <laughs> different things would happen. It would feel out of control and and I just I wanted to throw in the talent and give up. And my wife, being the more stable one, like no, come on, like she would try and and stabilize me, try and bring some sense and logic. But her sense and logic seems so foreign and so insufficient. Mm. But it, as a business owner, like like imagine like if I would have just like thrown in the towel ten years ago, I wouldn't have been able to experience the success and prosperity that I am under at this stage and season of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so interesting in the whole, like who we pair up with, right? That some of the things that cause disruption in the relationship, right? That like you can become anxious, she can become avoidant. But then also there's the flip side of those two things is like, you're probably very driven, very attention to detail. She's super steady and like can be like steadfast in the moments where you want to bail together in the business sense. You guys have managed to do like this amazing like thing and keep it together. But structurally in the relationship it's been tough, I would imagine. Well, and one thing I came to realize, I remember talking to a mentor, I think I was maybe um, eight years, eight or nine years into my business. And what you just, this is kind of a reflection of what you were just kind of alluding to was that I had a strength and a gift that helped me be successful in running a business, developing it and growing it. But then when it came to that gift being carried over into my home life, it became like a curse mm-hmm. because it just it just was not compatible uh, in the way I should operate, interact, or even relate with my wife. What have you noticed since you have become more aware of your anxiety and you're starting to navigate it in a healthier way? Like, what have you noticed about the relationship with your wife? That's a great question. In fact, um, we'll get into it here in just a little bit of a what I call a breathing, tapping, mindfulness behavior technique. I started about six weeks ago. And when I started this, those triggers from when a manager would call me um, started to subside. My emotions would start to subside. But I noticed like my emotions weren't getting stirred up anymore, very little to none. But I still had the behavior of like verbally in a negative way, reiterating that negative moment. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I would like to go on walks several times a week. And I had this check-in conversation with her and I, and I said, Hey, I really feel like my emotions are starting to get it like not so flared up anymore. But I think I'm noticing I'm, I'm verbally 
affirming this negative experience. I, I said, so how are you, what's your take on this? And she said, absolutely, that she's noticing that she's not getting triggered when she would hear me triggered hmm. based off of my trigger from a work phone call. And so she's noticing it and is just like so appreciative. So I remember even mm-hmm. after that conversation, it, it clicked and I, and I was like, okay, now it's down to like a behavior modification. Yeah. I need to catch myself and I need to stop verbalizing the negative aspect or, or how I'm negatively interpreting this, this call right now in this moment. Mm-hmm. We know from like the statistics, right, that this high percentage of the people listening to our program today are anxious, you know, and that there's probably also from the statistics, a great number of them who aren't getting treated, Mm -hmm. you know, it's they're they're just sort of white knuckling it. They're dealing with it. So you go through this process and, and you begin to understand your anxiety a lot better Mm -hmm. and you're gaining deeper insights about yourself and beginning to also, which we'll talk in a little bit about how, how you cope with it and how you make a shift internally. But from what I understand, you also then began to notice other people's triggers, other people struggling with anxiety. What did, what did you notice? So, so as I became more aware of myself and started working on this, it's like I had this light bulb moment in my brain and started realizing how people in the workplace struggle with this and seeing my own staff struggling with with triggers, their own personal um, tolerance levels of stress, and thinking about staff that I've had over the past 17 years. And, I, and it really made me realize that this really can be problematic for people on a professional level because it can hold them back from really developing professionally and really growing even just from a socioeconomic standpoint and where just their anxiety can really be a key thing holding them back even socioeconomically. No, so that's interesting, right? Because you're developing this skill set also as a therapist, but meanwhile, you're still a boss, which a boss isn't entirely a therapist, but as a boss, you're starting to notice obstacles in your employees' wellness and their effectiveness at work. Have you, has that been a little bit of a struggle to balance those, those roles? It is such a weird struggle on just being all completely transparent. For some reason, there's this tension inside of me that, that makes me uncomfortable going there with employees. However, I have done it. And when I've walked into that conversation with staff, it becomes the most natural mm-hmm. thing in how I could build that rapport with them and really do some, in our clinical, it's called motivational interviewing, to really stimulate their own motivation to want to grow and develop and become better in their life. That's what's so amazing about doing this work. It affects so many people because when we become aware, we become more compassionate. We get to hold space better, which then makes people feel more seen, more heard, more validated, which whether it's in the workplace, whether in the relationship, family, like all around, it helps everybody develop around us. Well, and then even if you think about like, if you have low tolerance for stress or low tolerance with anxiety at work, imagine the anxious spouse coming home and always like spilling their guts or complaining or, or whining, not in a negative judgmental way about them, but because they struggle and they need this release. And, and granted, like our spouse 
we want a spouse to be able to absorb some of that, right? But what if one of them is overwhelming for the other Mm -hmm. and really could benefit from being able to make improvements in managing anxiety triggers? Yeah. I mean, that's, I identified with that when you're talking about that is like the balance between like as a partner of somebody who struggles with anxiety of like being supportive and managing your own sort of, because you become overwhelmed by your partner's overwhelm. But if you do that, then it's like pouring gas on the fire, right? Like then if you don't maintain your patience and don't remain empathetic, then it's, I mean, that's horrible to do that to your partner. But it's like, the reality is, is like, we've seen it over the years is like, the spouse of the anxious individual loses their their patience with it at times. Well, I, it reminds me of a couple, as, as I was even just thinking about this podcast, it reminded me of a couple that I, I'm working with where the wife struggles with, with intense anxiety. She's, she's also going through a season with young kids, and she struggles with um, what she even would label as, as being OCD with cleanliness and, and orderliness in the house. And it was overwhelming for the husband. And we'd been kind of stuck for a couple of weeks. And there was something that that she mentioned. And I gave him the idea to create this daily agenda of who watches the kids, how to just organize their day and take responsibility, but then to like post this. And the week later, not knowing what I was going to walk into, like all of a sudden the wife had like eyes of endearment for her husband mm-hmm. because, and I asked her what, what was the change? And she said, just seeing this printed agenda made me feel like what was out of control mm-hmm. is now put back into this orderly box now. And so it was where we were struggling so bad. They had this intense wall between each other. Like all of a sudden she was just all of a sudden able to like reconnect and have some compassionate connection with them. So you you help them create systems. That's a big thing like that might soothe the individual who needs that order. But let's circle back now to you because this is going to be helpful for listeners. How have you begun to manage your anxiety in a way that feels like where you feel empowered? So going through school, I, I had put together some studies that I had come across regarding mindfulness behavior techniques. And one of the techniques that I started to do for myself, I'll do this in the morning and not 100% perfectly, but at least five, six times a week. Mm. And it's a breathing, tapping, body scan technique. So the science behind it, when we get triggered, we're getting triggered the lower stem of our brain. Mm -hmm. It's at the very bottom section of our head and, and the neck arena. And that lower stem of the brain, that's where that fight or flight gets triggered. And it's useful in a life or death situation, right? But how many times do we actually face a true life or death situation? But yet we live in such a, uh, what can feel like a chaotic world sometimes. And that part of our brain is constantly Mm -hmm. being triggered and it's releasing these hormones that are Mm -hmm. flushing our body, that our body is then translating to this, this tension this anxiety. And one of the studies I had come across was that in a true life or death situation for your brain to be the most effective, your frontal lobe actually shuts down. And that frontal lobe is actually super critical when it's in an anxiety situation. That frontal lobe is what gives you the logic and reasoning to be able to to reason your way out of this 
illogical, irrational reaction that mm -hmm. you're having. So what the study showed was that if you can get the person in the middle of the anxiety to recognize what is this emotion that I'm feeling, to be able to call it out, what is it, where is it feeling, to be able to recognize the thoughts in your head in the moment, you could actually start to light up that frontal lobe, mm. which could start soothing your brain, causing your brain to now operate in a more healthy way. So there are two aspects that I wanted to talk about was one, when you're in the middle of it, which Tara, I don't know if you want to go over that process, that cognitive restructuring process, uh, which is super helpful when you're in the middle of, of being triggered. Right. Oh, for sure. First of all, it's one of the biggest interventions we use with our individuals and couples here and also within our own relationship at home and even with my family members <laughs> and my kids sometimes. And I know a lot of people who listen to this are driving and stuff, so you can always go back and take notes or <laughs> if you want the whole process, just DM us and I will be happy, happy to share that with you because it really is like a blessing to have this intervention. So let's just say, you know, we get triggered and we can start to feel that like hypervigilance or anger or constriction, tension, whatever it might be. The first thing we want to do, it's kind of going off of what you just said, is what are the thoughts? And they're pretty automatic. You don't even have to think them. They'll just be like, I can't believe this is happening. Here we go again. I'm so sick of this. I can't believe he's doing this again. I'm so mad, whatever these thoughts are. And there's probably like 30 to 100 of them. So you just kind of, and I always say write down this process first because it helps you kind of slow it down and get into this structured piece. And then it really starts to become more automatic for you. So you're writing down all the thoughts like, what were the thoughts to that trigger? And then you identify the feelings. I feel sad. I feel frustrated. I feel anxious. I feel lonely. I feel rejected, whatever it might be. And then you're writing the behaviors down. Like, what did you do in that moment, right? I yelled. I punched a pillow. I withdrew. Yeah, I mean, it's whatever your habits are when things go awry, you know? So the situation trigger, right? Like EJ rolled his eyes at me. Like, let's just say that's a trigger. I'm not saying he just did that. <laughs> EJ rolled his eyes at me. Rolling his eyes was my trigger. It, you got to kind of really narrow it down to like, what was it the tone of voice? Was it a body language thing? Was it a high pitch? Like, what was the actual trigger? So again, EJ rolled his eyes. My thoughts, what a freaking jerk. I don't say these out loud, by the way. <laughs> I can't believe this. Like, I'm so mad. This isn't going to work. I'm so sick of this, right? Again, I could go on and on, but we are- Here we go ready. again. That's a big one. Here we go again, right? Feelings. I feel judged. I feel disappointed. I feel sad. Behaviors. I ah, There is many times that I will start to clean, like voraciously. I will just start like switching the floors and- wiping down the counters, like I kind of just like withdraw and clean. Okay. So that's the thoughts, the feelings, and the behaviors. All automatic. They happen instantaneously. You just want to go through them and be like, what are they? And then it gets a little bit more deeper, right? This is kind of where like we're our CSI investigator. Okay. What were the negative core beliefs in this moment, right? That were triggered. For me, I can usually identify one to two negative core beliefs that happen in 300 different fights. So we usually only have about two or three. And mine is I'm insignificant and I don't matter. 
right? And so I'll be like, okay, here were the feelings, here were the thoughts, here are the behaviors, here's the negative core belief, like I'm insignificant. Okay, that's like hard to feel, right? Which is why we have this whole way of not feeling that. But if we go deeper, we will normally go to, I'm insignificant, I can't get it right, there's something wrong with me, I'm not safe, whatever it might be. And then I say, what does this remind me of? Okay, because I know it goes back earlier than my relationship with EJ. And I'm like, okay, gosh, this reminds me of, and I can go back pretty early on just because I've done this so many times, but this reminds me when I was in first grade and I was sitting there and my dad was supposed to pick me up and, and he didn't, and we only would see him every other weekend. And I just remember in that moment, I felt so sad. And, and the more we can kind of start to understand when these negative core beliefs developed, because I'm not in first grade saying, oh, I'm insignificant. I don't matter. It's a feeling. I remember that feeling in the pit of my stomach and we, our bodies will take us there if we allow it. So it's so amazing what happens when you start to be like, when did this negative core belief develop? And so then with that awareness, right, can't go back, can't change the past, can't go back and say, dad, really pick me up this time in first grade. But what I can say to myself now that I'm adult and I've worked on myself and I have a loving family and I know my husband is safe is like, I do matter. I am significant. That immediately shifts me into like a empowered place versus a fear-based place, right? Because I don't matter. I felt that for so many years, like that doesn't feel good. But when I can say I do matter, I am significant, it really helps calm my nervous system. And then I get to share my trigger with EJ and then he understands it better. It's not like, God, how dare you roll your eyes at me? It's, hey, EJ, I got to let you know when you rolled your eyes, because he was probably triggered too, this is what happened for me. And oh my gosh, it took me back to first grade. And most partners are like, oh my God, I had like, thank you for sharing. I had no idea. That wasn't my intention. And the more and more you do this work, you really start to realize that these negative core beliefs that we're not even aware of in the moment, those are the little culprits in those triggers, most of the triggers. And what's interesting was that process, uh, even just recently, I had to do that process maybe once or twice in the last month or so with my wife. There was a trigger, and I walked through that whole all those steps for myself, and I shared a few of those with my wife. And it's amazing because, one, it helps you even just with self-compassion when mm-hmm. you think about, what does this remind me of? And two, when you can say, what does this remind me of to your spouse, I, I think it it could create some empathy um, that wouldn't have been there versus when you're like, well, it was because you did this and you did that, right? All right, so level one you talked about, that's like in the moment of anxiety, having some sort of matrix that you run it through that gives you insight into it. And the insight that Tara took you through also has a way of de-escalating you because you're, you're understanding yourself better, right? Right. So then the level two you're talking about, I think, is more on the prevention side, more on the proactive side. Correct. So so what's going on from what I understood it from a research perspective is that when you're getting triggered, the event, the scenario, that's information that comes into your brain. It can get trapped in your lower brainstem 
And I usually give this analogy. It's like this highway that's on this loop and it has no exit. Mm. And that information just can't get off on an exit and go up to your upper part of your brain where you can logically reason yourself out with some self-compassion. And so one of the things that I discovered was doing a breathing exercise, a body scan, and alternating tapping with my finger or hand on my leg to a rhythm of my heart rate at a restful state. And that tapping, what the research shows was that it can help increase the neuron production in your brain. And with those, when you could increase the neuron capacity in your brain, it can increase the likelihood of that information getting stuck in your, your lower brainstem to increase its ability to naturally exit out so that it doesn't stay there and keep flooding you in the moment. And so as I did this, I, I go through this, this routine. It's about five or 10 minutes in the morning. And I'll even listen to like slow, steady music that has a rhythm of about a rested heart rate. Uh, that rusted heart rate also has significance because it produces or reinforces this stability, predictability for your for your nervous system. And so as I'm tapping, the science behind the tapping is because if I tap my left hand, I'm activating my right brain. If I'm tapping my right hand, I'm activating the left hemisphere of my brain. And so as I'm breathing, so that I'm doing a breathing exercise, I'm doing a four, seven, eight technique. It's I'm, I'm inhaling for four seconds. My tapping is my count. Inhaling for four, I'm holding it for seven. And then I'm releasing for eight all the way until it's just fully expelled out of my stomach. I'm paying attention to the sensation of the breath. I'm doing a body scan, checking for these areas in our place in our body where we just hold tension and we don't realize it from our eye sockets to our cheeks to our jawbone to our neck, our shoulders, and just doing this body scan to just become more aware of my body. And so even just that practice of being aware of your body, you start to realize quicker, say, driving in a car when you've got this death grip on a steering wheel, like, like is it really necessary? Like, mm-hmm. like, how necessary is it? But you've been doing this subconsciously for so long. Mm-hmm. And how much benefit would you have from being able to have just even a relaxed grip while you're driving? Mm-hmm. I love what you just said, because that speaks to, you know, here you you develop this breath practice in order to soothe your central nervous system. But one of the biggest things it did is it increased your awareness. You become mindful of things that maybe in the past would have gone unknown. And so then you're catching things so much earlier before they become totally overwhelming. And then you got a choice because if you catch the gripping on the wheel an hour before the gripping has mounted into complete body tension mm-hmm. and repetitive thoughts, you can throw a Yui a heck of a lot easier, right? That's where our psychoeducation around mindfulness is huge because people think like mindfulness is like, oh, I'm just learning to meditate to be a Buddha. It's like, no, you're learning to, to become mindful so you can be aware of things in the micro stage before they gain such momentum, whether it's frustration with your partner, whether it's sadness, yeah. whether it's you know irritability, whatever those yeah. those things that become overwhelming from you, if you catch them early, man, you you got power then. And, and even just for a brief moment, I want to speak to myself being a Christian. There's a segment of the Christian population, like you you just said. There's 
people make this negative connotation, well, it's like this Buddha yoga kind of thing. And what I've realized, like, I mean, there's, there's science behind this, like our body, the way it's built, the way it's made, these are like healing ways to be able to overcome this natural anxiety and tension. And so it doesn't have to be what in, even in the Christian arena, this misconstrued, like, oh man, like I, I can't touch that because that's against my religion. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, at its most simple level. And I, and I think some of that's on like, you know, those of us who maybe have, have taught it over the years is like, you know, every time you go into a yoga studio and there's a picture of Vishnu and incense burning, it like creates this perception. Cause that's always been the venue to learn that the reality is, is like, this is just basic stuff. This is just right. like, I'm paying attention to my breath. I'm noticing my body. It doesn't have any true religion in it. It's it's just a practice, mm-hmm. you know? Correct. And so I think it's opening people's minds, but it's also delivering it to people yeah. in a way in which is is a little more vanilla and is a little more honest to what it is. I feel like just, I use this kind of visual with a lot of my clients. I'm like, mindfulness techniques or just mindfulness awareness, it's like we're the drivers of our own bus, right? It feels good to drive our own bus. When we don't have that, it's like something else is in the front of the steering wheel and we're in the back freaking for along for this dang bumpy ride and we don't like it and we have no control. So again, it just gives you, I want to be the driver of my own bus. Maybe a couple times I'll sit in the back. It's okay. <laughs> but I really want to be the driver of my own bus. And the other element, after I got in, maybe within a couple of weeks and noticing this improvement to where I, I was not getting so triggered as much. In the middle of doing this routine, I would start visualizing intense triggers almost to like to get my brain to to want to activate mm. in this moment so that while I'm doing this routine, my body could start learning that, hey, we need to be steady. Like we can manage this. We can be okay. We don't need to, we don't need to get so triggered anymore yeah. when we have these thoughts about this event. That's a huge part of like trauma treatment. I mean, we see, we could go on. We could go on for like hours, but... I mean, just to wrap it all the way back around to relationship renovation, it sounds like this has had a tremendously positive effect on your relationship with your wife. Oh, absolutely. To be able to, and look, not everything is like dramatic overnight or trying to set these big lofty expectations, but it is noticeable. My wife has affirmed it. And so to be able to know, like, I'm on that track of improvement, but then also because I I feel like just having those struggles, like I've had a couple of couples where one of them, I feel like I relate. And so like, I have that greater compassion and empathy to really help that individual of the couple to really um, ignite some hope that they can improve as well and be able to manage this better where they're not triggered so badly. Yeah. That's that dual benefit that we get as therapists, right? That like we're working on it in our own lives Mm -hmm. and it also provides us really valuable information to help others. And, uh, and then hopefully in, you know, here in this podcast, I think this has been a, a really like fascinating and interesting and compelling sort of exploration of, of anxiety that affects so many people. So thank you, Gabe. Thank you. This has been tremendous. Gabe, if I haven't told you, I think I have a couple of times. I just feel very appreciative that you're here with us, that you bring your wisdom, your experience, your knowledge but biggest of all, like your heart. I mean, 
people just feel so safe with you very quickly. And yes, this was like, I know you've been a business owner and it's super successful in that realm, but your heart was meant to be a therapist. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. even just the environment that you guys create here because there are tendencies that I feel like I could even be an introvert, but in here, like I just like naturally just like open up and Safety. it's so super comfortable and safe here. That's awesome. We try. Yeah. <laughs> we try to practice what we preach. Well, thank you. And thank you, everybody out there. You inspire us and drive us to do this. And one of the, you know, we know that that what we talk about has the ability to help people because we, we do it every day and sit across from people. But when we receive messages back from you and when people tell us like, you know, hey, thank you so much for this episode on that, it, it, it's it's we appreciate that. We also love when you give us information back about what else we can talk about or who else we can talk to because our mission here is is you know just to help people suffer less, uh, help people be happier as individuals, help people be happier as couples, help children grow up in healthy environments. Mm. You know, we are driven to do this and and you are an active participant out there listening. So so thank you and keep interacting with us because we very much appreciate it. Yes. And as always, just take care of yourself, take care of each other, and uh, try some of those techniques that Gabe mentioned today in our podcast. Absolutely. You can look up that 478 breath. We'll, we'll even, we'll put a link in the show notes for y'all. Absolutely. And also, if you guys want that cognitive restructuring technique, which is a game changer in relationships, please reach out. I will send over our resources. All right. Well, okay. thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Singing on the train, me and you listening to the rain. Me and you, we are the same. Me and you have all the fame we need. Indeed, you and me are we. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.